Mary asked me, gave me an assignment. She said, I would like you to talk about the Enlightenment. So here's a talk on the Enlightenment. Um, I've called it Reclaiming the Enlightenment, and what I like to do is sort of deal with problems and try to resolve them. And the problem that I want to confront that is relevant to us as ethical culturists and certainly as inhabitants of the United States of America is how indeed our values need to be shifted or not based on the pressures of living in what is now clearly a multicultural society. Some refer to it as a postmodern society as well. And so here's my address. Acting on the entitlements which the laws of nature and nature's God had given to the American people, Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1776, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." End quote. 87 years later, between 10 and 20,000 people gathered on the fields of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to hear President Abraham Lincoln give a speech that lasted no more than three minutes. Though rumors have persisted that Lincoln wrote the 272 words of the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope in a momentary flash of inspiration, the truth is that he actually thought long and hard, not only about the composition of that brief address, but indeed its historic role he intended for it to play. For in writing the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln self-consciously was attempting to fulfill the unfulfilled promises that Jefferson had proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence. Whereas the birth of the nation heralded but left unrealized the equality of all men, the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves rededicated the nation to, quote, a new birth of freedom, a democratic government, quote, of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it was almost exactly 100 years later, standing before the Lincoln Memorial in, here in Washington, D.C., on August 28, 1963, that Martin Luther King echoed the words of Jefferson and Lincoln when he said, quote, five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we now stand signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But 100 years later, we must face the tragic fact that the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. In a sense, King said, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today, he continued, that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. 
Most people who have heard it, and heard it over and over again, know only the refrains at the end, at the conclusion of the I Have a Dream speech, and neglect to absorb the beautiful, grandiloquent rhetoric, oratory that comes at the very beginning. And that comes from the beginning of the opening paragraphs of the I Have a Dream speech. Well, these three examples of timeless American oratory, coming from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, respectively, all reveal a common thread running through them and share common values. They address themselves to the sturdy values of equality, justice, freedom, and the promises of a progressively unfolding and more bountiful future. These ideas of justice, equality, freedom, and progress, ideas that frame the modern world and our modern consciousness, did not come from nowhere. Jefferson did not himself create them, nor did Lincoln, nor did King. They, in fact, inherited these ideas from the glorious outpouring of thought, creativity, and discovery known as the European Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was that radical awakening of the power of the human mind. It was a movement that flourished in the century between the glorious revolution in England in 1688 and the French Revolution in 1789, but it really extended for 100 years before and almost 100 years after the latter date. What was the Enlightenment? What was the Enlightenment? Let's put it this way. If you had lived in medieval Europe, the world around you would essentially be unknowable and unknown. Even if you were among the rare individuals who were educated, you would have little sense of how history and almost no grasp of how the world works. The world would confront you in and of itself as an inscrutable mystery, and all mysteries would ultimately be explained as an expression of God's will. Yours would be an authoritarian world governed by the power of God, his church, and his monarchs who ruled by divine decree. That changed in the 17th century when men such as Galileo, Kepler, and most of all, Isaac Newton created modern science. With the age of science came the extraordinary discovery that human beings could actually use the power of their minds and reason to decipher how nature works. The planets, which to the medieval mind were embedded in crystalline spheres and propelled by the power of invisible angels, in the 17th century saw those angels replaced by the laws of gravitation and celestial mechanics. In fact, Newton was heralded in his own time as an absolute genius, unique in the human species, almost a freak of nature. In fact, he was referred to as the, the divine mind. And one of his contemporaries, the British poet Alexander Pope, whose mind was formatted in such a way that he couldn't help but write in little rhyming couplets, okay, <laughs> had once written an ode to Newton, which is very revelatory of the adulation that Newton received in his own lifetime. And it went something like this. Nature and nature's laws lay hid by night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Okay, it was absolutely beautiful. The, in effect, the mind of Newton, okay, and the scientific laws of physics, which he discovered, were really the mind of God, okay, deployed in the way in which nature operates. The Enlightenment made another remarkable discovery. Not only was nature scrutable to the human mind, but nature could actually be transformed to make life better, perhaps even happier for humankind. 
Reason could be harnessed to scientific discovery, and scientific, scientific discovery led to applied technology. In the minds of Enlightenment philosophers, reason and inquiry were directed not only to the natural, but to the social world that we inhabit. If there were laws that governed how nature works, perhaps there are analogous laws that determine how human beings function in society. Political philosophers, such as Jefferson, believed that there were. And just as Newtonian laws are part of nature, so there are basic rights that are inalienable from and natural to human beings, just as a person's shadow is inalienable from him or her. And according to Jefferson and those of his ilk, it is the role, indeed, the very purpose of the state and government to protect these natural rights. The period of the Enlightenment gave us modern science, but it also gave us the modern political world that we enjoy. It overthrew absolute monarchs and replaced them with a democratic state, where power and legitimacy does not come from the king above and God above him, but from, indeed, the people below. It is no accident that the first three words of the Constitution are we the people. And the Constitution, by the way, despite what evangelical crusaders will tell you, is a totally godless document. And not by default, by design, okay? We the people, it doesn't start with we the children under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, which it could have begun with. It says we the people, indicating that the power of the state no longer devolves from God above through his king and other emissaries to the serfs below, but indeed comes from the people below. It was John Locke, of course, who was most articulate in proclaiming that a legitimate government comes through the consent of the governed, and the rights of government in Locke's mind were strictly to protect the natural rights of people. And when government encroached uh, on the people and abused its rightful authority, Locke proclaimed, as did Jefferson, a right to rebellion to restore the government to its appropriate role of the protection of natural rights. The Enlightenment was a heady and exhilarating time. Its temperament was one of skepticism, secularism, and cosmopolitanism. It extended from Edinburgh to Naples, Paris to Berlin, Boston to Philadelphia. It sought to replace ignorance with knowledge, superstition and illusion with reason, authoritarianism with democracy, degradation with dignity, the childhood of humankind with its maturity, traditional religion with secularism, and divine will with natural law. But most of all, the Enlightenment cherished freedom, the freedom to inquire, the freedom to know, and the freedom from political tyranny. The Enlightenment claimed such geniuses as the Scotsman David Hume and Adam Smith, the Englishman John Locke and Jeremy Bentham, the Germans Gotthold Lessing and Immanuel Kant, the Jew Mo Moses Mendelssohn, the Italian Cesare Beccaria, the Frenchman Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Voltaire, and the Americans Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, whom their European colleagues saw as part of the family, this quarreling family of philosophers, Enlightenment philosophes, as they were called. The philosophes preached ethics and free trade, tolerance and universalism, democracy and revolution, human dignity, and humane punishment for criminals. 
While most of these figures did not abandon their belief in God, they relegated God to the austere and impersonal role of, quote, a grand architect of the universe. While they moved to the forefront of their concerns, the radical and progressive improvement of human society and employed reason, science, and political freedom as the vehicles to get us there. If we enjoy the fruits of science and medicine and a life of more than 75 years, if we have come to cherish liberty and the concept of rights, if we enjoy a skeptical approach to life and value the free mind, in short, we are willing to defend our modern way of life with all its pitfalls, challenges, and tragedies, then we need to thank the philosophers, scientists, inventors, and artists, too, of the era of the European Enlightenment. An appreciation for the Enlightenment is directly relevant to us as ethical culturists also, for ethical culture and its humanism is assuredly a child of the Enlightenment. Felix Adler, our founder, was educated in the best German universities, which in the 19th century were the intellectually freest and most proficient in the world, and resonated with the spirit of such Enlightenment figures as Hegel and Kant. Indeed, Adler was an indirect disciple of Kant, and his ethical culture, his primary, and his primary emphasis on ethics and his attack on traditional religion were built on broadly Kantian principles. In its commitment to ethics, dignity, democracy, free inquiry, universalism, and reason, ethical culture has remained loyal to the legacy and spirit of the European Enlightenment. Despite its glories, the Enlightenment is under deep attack today and has been for at least the last 25 years. There are even those who believe that it was a grand historical mistake and in some unimaginable way argue that the world have been better off had it never occurred. The attack on the Enlightenment is most evident in academia and among intellectual social critics, but as often is the case, what goes on in the ivory tower even today often parallels what transpires in the culture as a whole and even plays a role in precipitating cultural attitudes. The attack on the Enlightenment is manifested in the so-called culture wars that have been going on in the universities. Should students study and revere only the classical texts of, quote, dead white European males who were primarily enlightened figures, or should they study in addition or instead the texts of writers from the non-Western world? Uh, more than 20 years ago, I taught contemporary civilization at Columbia, which is one of the two pivotal pillar courses of the core curriculum, and uh, it hasn't changed much since World War I, and we would in engage in actively in these debates about which texts we should uh, remove and which ones we should replace them with and so on, whether they should be contemporary modern figures from the non-West and so on, and believe me, some of these professors fought as if you were extracting their liver. I mean, these really became crucial, crucial issues in academia. Okay. The attack on the Enlightenment is manifested, I think, also in a renewed respect given to religion and to those beliefs which fall short of rational criteria. More than 50 years ago, many educated people in the West would have looked at religion as a medieval superstition and a relic of the pre-modern age. Even if they would not have said so, they would have felt a sympathy for Voltaire's cry, écrasez l'enfant, crush that infamous thing. Every time Voltaire wrote a letter to a friend, he would sign it Voltaire, and then underneath he would say, écrasez l'enfant, crush that infamous thing. And you know what the infamous thing was? It was the church, which he hated. Okay. Today, in the name of, quote, tolerance, 
We feel a need to abide sincerely rendered points of view, no matter how counterfactual or from a rational perspective preposterous they may be. In the West, equality, including equality between the sexes, is a salient enlightenment value. Equal pay for equal work easily rolls from our lips. But when we confront women in Muslim countries who wear the veil and profess that they choose to do so as an authentic expression of their cultural, religious traditions and beliefs, what happens to our commitment to gender equality? Perhaps a confidence that we Westerners would have had 50 years ago is thrown off balance when we encounter deep-rooted cultures that are not Western and never pass through the liberalizing screen of the Enlightenment. The Western Enlightenment project is forced to question its own premises when confronted with what has come to be known, quote, as cultural relativism. Values that are good for one culture may not be good for another. And the attack on the Enlightenment is manifest, I think, in disillusionment with science. Fifty years ago, when I was a kid, science was applauded as a type of messiah that engined progress and would improve life for all as it had for 300 years. But with the piling high of toxic waste, global warming, and nuclear weapons and debris that'll be around forever, science, in fact, has fallen off its lofty pedestal. So little regard is there for the importance of science and its truth that we have now even had, not the current one, a president of the United States who claims that the jury is still out on the theory of evolution. Even though evolution is one of the foundational pillars and principles of modern science on which the scaffolding of virtually all contemporary science is built. Some in this country may applaud it. For most others, it is probably a matter of indifference. Some believe in evolution, others in creationism, just as some prefer chocolate ice cream while others favor pistachio. It's just a matter of taste and opinion all the way down. A blanket of, quote, tolerance, or we might say, quote, false tolerance, trumps any claim to learned authority, knowledge, scientific, or otherwise. Some see in the attack on the Enlightenment a devaluing of knowledge and learning generally, a devaluation of ideas and facts and the replacement by opinions, the transformation of politics into culture and learning into a form of entertainment, authority into celebrity, and the pursuit of objective knowledge into subjective feelings with all these changes blessed by the mantra of tolerance. Well, why is there this disillusionment with the Enlightenment? Why the attack? I think there are two main sources. On the one hand, one which is historical, demographic, and factual, and the other is more strictly intellectual and philosophical. Critics make an interesting, I think, interesting and important observation. While white Christian European men of the 17th and 18th centuries were professing universalism, equality, tolerance, justice, freedom, humanity, the dignity of human beings, and all those enlightenment values, they were at the very same time conquering the world, enslaving non-white peoples, subjecting women, and with few exceptions, despising Jews, and otherwise engaging in imperialism, colonialism, and genocide. And indeed, it's true. Virtually all the luminaries of the Enlightenment we can evaluate by our standards as racist, male chauvinist, anti-Semitic bigots. 
Okay, and that's true. And you know where you see that? You don't see that in their published treatises and expositions on philosophy. If you want to know their true personal values, you read their correspondence. That is the letters that they wrote to each other. It's almost like the footnotes in texts. It's where indeed the truth of their personally held views comes out, okay? When it came to women, the men of the Enlightenment equated humanity with the capacity for reason, and women, they argued, did not quite have enough of it. Hence, the defense of continued patriarchy and male dominance. The amiable David Hume and the ethically obsessed rationalist Immanuel Kant in their correspondences had vile things to say about Africans. Voltaire was a polemical anti-Semite and Thomas Jefferson, who penned the immortal words that, quote, all men are created equal, could at the same time own, buy, and sell human beings who happen to have come from Africa and have dark skins. In order to seal their point, those who despair of the Enlightenment will pose the following very nagging question. They'll ask, which was the most highly educated rational, indeed enlightened society of the 20th century. The land that cherished Goethe and loved Beethoven. The answer, of course, is mid-century Germany. And what were the fruits of all this rationalism, high culture, education, science, and technology, and enlightenment thought? The fruits of all this, they conclude, was the creation of a cult of death where in science, education, reason, philosophy, technology, and bureaucracy were marshaled in the service of creating killing factories dedicated to systematically murdering with greatest efficiency the largest number of people in the quickest period of time at the least cost. Where does the Enlightenment lead, they ask? The Enlightenment leads to and ends at Auschwitz. Okay, that's the argument. But how could this be, we would ask. This is the puzzle. How can this be? How could Thomas Jefferson look into the face of a black man and not quite see a human being? How could this contradiction abide? Here we need to turn intellectual for a moment. The great mistake of the Enlightenment, so its critics argue, is that it dedicated itself to the belief that there is some kind of objective truth out there that through the dispassionate use of our reason, we can discover. Moreover, the Enlightenment was hung up on abstract concepts such as universalism, which, which its critics claim has no real existence. The Enlightenment preached ideals that don't exist in the real world and therefore was blind to those concrete facts of people's lives that truly move and motivate them. For example, the Enlightenment taught respect for, quote, humanity in general, while overlooking the fact that there is no such thing as a human being in general or a universal human being, just as there is no such thing as a flower in general. If I asked any one of you to go out into the park and bring me back a universal flower, a flower in general, you could not do it. You'd have to bring back a daisy, a carnation, a rose, a tulip, or some other flower. The idea of a flower in general is an abstraction that does not exist in the real world. So argued there are only French people, Italians, Africans, Jews, etc. 
By glorifying an abstract ideal which doesn't truly exist, the men of the Enlightenment equated, therefore, that ideal with themselves. That is, the dominant group of white, educated Christian European men. The ideal standard thereby became their standard for what was excellent, indeed superior. By contrast, all other types, be they, be they women, blacks, Jews, or whatever, were deemed by varying degrees to be inferior to those professed standards of excellence, to the ideal. Behind the rationale of universal values, there resides, therefore, a justification for male dominance, imperialism, the derogation of all people who fall short of that ideal. Despite its stated pretensions of universal humanity and equality based on that universal humanity, the high-minded values of the Enlightenment really function as a mask to hide the power interests of those who, in fact, are putting forward those ideals. Ask, for example, and this is fanciful, a French sculptor in Paris, which is the seat of the Enlightenment in 1780, to make a bust of a human being in general an ideal category that is not found in reality, and the chances are that his bust will look very much like a French man. He will simply identify, simply identify the ideal type with himself, thus setting in motion a hierarchy that implies that all others are lesser and inferior types. Are you following the reason, reasoning here? The intellectual basis of this argument is that there is no such thing as objective truths or even objective facts that are somehow outside of the interests of those who are proclaiming those facts. All statements of facts, it is maintained, are really made in order to push forward the power interests of those who are making them. There are no universal truths, only socially created assertions of power masquerading as universal truths. There's an adage in feminist circles in this regard that says, quote, objectivity is really male subjectivity. Got it? No, maybe you got it? All right. Objectivity is really male subjectivity. It's men who put forward the notion of objective values, and why do they do it? Because of their subjective desires to lord it over women and to maintain patriarchy and so forth. So when Jefferson proclaimed, quote, all men are created equal, what he really meant was, quote, men like us, those who share our values, our skin color, our privilege, our habits, and our way of life, and not the other. Furthermore, other critics of the Enlightenment will say that by making objective claims, universal claims binding on all, the philosophers of the Enlightenment were really making totalizing claims, presenting a total exhaustive explanation of reality that morphs politically into totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Well, this unmasking of the pretensions of the Enlightenment are propelled by facts on the ground and the experiences of other people and other cultures that we have. We truly live now, of course, in a multicultural world in which we bump up against people who are not Western all the time. What makes this contact different from the 18th and 19th centuries is that we are now confronting non-Western peoples, not as subordinates or slaves, but as equals who are challenging the presumptions of the West by claiming that their cultural values are not only different from ours, but are as authentic as ours. Non-Western people, since the end of colonialism, since decolonization, now have a place at the table as equals and can challenge our values from that perspective and not be seen 
and dismissed as subordinates. Who in the United States before September 11, 2001 even thought about the Muslim world? But now, of course, we can't help think about it and take it very, very seriously. This challenge coming from the non-Western world is essentially new, and it is a cause for us in the West to reflect, I think, on our basic values. Such reflection has no doubt created, I think, a crisis of self-confidence that the West has had in itself and in, by extension, the Enlightenment. One response to the challenge coming from the realities of multiculturalism is, as I've implied, is the growth of tolerance in the face of diversity. To a great extent, this has been a very good thing. Americans, I believe, and it's difficult at this moment to accept this, but Americans, I think, over the last several decades have really tried hard to overcome their longstanding prejudices, and I think that there have been very tangible successes. I mean, we just had a, a rendering of those young people who have committed suicide and have been the objects of, of gay bashing. Um, as the parent of two gay children, I'm not insensitive uh, to that phenomenon. And yet, when we think about this, uh, and we look back only 30 or 40 years, being homosexual was something that was deeply closeted. It was an evil that dare not speak its name. And in a few short decades, we've moved to the point where gay marriage is now construed to be, in effect, a respectable, by many people, a respectable option. I claim, if you look over the long tapestry, despite the anti-Muslim moment we're in and the anti-gay moment that has been, has been indeed, um, uh, highlighted that over the last several decades we have made as Americans some indeed significant progress. For example, it is no longer in good form to make fun of fat people or people with handicaps or to have circus freak shows that my aunts took me to when I was a kid in the 50s. Those don't exist anymore. No longer could a Father Cochlin spew his gutter anti-Semitism to three million avid radio listeners and the Ku Klux Klan, once an organization, friends, of three million people, today can claim barely uh, 3,000 marginalized pathetic souls. I, for one, believe that, well, that's true. It's true. Uh, people don't realize that around World War I in the anti-nativist moment, anti-immigrant, talking about attacks on immigrants, okay, around the period of World War I where we had militant nativist groups and real broadside violence, much of it perpetrated by the Klan, okay, you had a Ku Klux Klan that was a grassroots movement with close to three million members. Okay, it's a different environment that we live in. We've got dangerous fringe groups, but indeed they are on the fringe. I personally believe that the mainstream reaction to Muslims in America after 9-11, in fact, could have been much worse had it not been for the work of the so-called, quote, cultural left and its often derided commitment to political correctness. The noted and late American philosopher Richard Rorty has written that the cultural left, with its emphasis on, emphasis on tolerance for diversity, has helped to, quote, reduce sadism in American life and I think, with many exceptions, he is correct. To some extent, I can see that the attack on the Enlightenment and the presumed superiority of its values growing out of the West have been chastened and softened as a result of our unavoidable encounter with people who are different. And to some extent, I admit that this has been a good thing, but only to an extent. The question I ask is to what extent do we take the value of tolerance? At what point does a commitment to tolerance morph into a position in which you stand for nothing at all? 
At what point do we conclude that there are no universal values, that all values are really local values, and accede to a cultural relativism in which all things are permissible in its name? If my enlightenment-derived morality causes me to oppose the death penalty, and I've been an abolitionist since I was 12 years old, if my enlightenment-derived morality causes me to oppose the death penalty, am I to conclude that it is appropriate for me to oppose it in the West, but ignore it when it is applied to Muslims by Muslims on the grounds that Islamic law allows it, and it has always been a part of Muslim culture? What about the amputation of limbs for certain crimes? Is this a matter of cruel and degrading punishment when applied in the West, but acceptable in the Muslim world if a case can be made that it is part of Muslim practice going back 1,400 years? When it comes to women's equality, am I to accept all forms of oppression of women because that oppression has been time-honored and sanctioned as an authentic part of an authentic traditional culture? When it comes to distinctive headgear, probably. Uh, wearing veils, maybe, but barring women from work and assigning them to the home exclusively to be uneducated breeding machines, no, my universalism does not accept that. My commitment to universal values, to enlightenment values, proclaims that all people want and need to have enough autonomy, enough agency in life to make their own choices. All people want to be free of coercion and free of gratuitous pain inflicted upon them. The arguments for cultural relativism and for tolerance for me do not extend so far as to violate what I believe to be universally true, and at the center of that, I believe, I have the faith, is a universal desire of all people in all cultures to have enough agency, enough space to make their own choices as to what they will do with regard to their cultures. Placing myself at variance with some academic colleagues, I continue to believe in the Enlightenment Project and its values of reason, rights, dignity, equality, and justice as universal values that in some sense are binding on all people. Clearly, different cultures will express these values differently, but in some sense they remain in principle the same. In short, I believe in tolerance and I believe in respect for diversity, but not without limits. Although it is very unpopular to say so these days, I believe, that it, I believe that some ways of life are better than others. And ways of life in which people preserve a range of autonomy, of agency, as I'm saying, in which they have the freedom to remain in a community or leave it, is better than a way of life in which people are the objects of authoritarianism, coercion, and the infliction of unwanted pain, even if these realities are sanctioned by the cultures of which they are a part. Those who condemn the Enlightenment and its, universal, and its universalism and its abstractions, I think, make at least two mistakes. While it is true that the universal values of humanity and equality professed by the men of the Enlightenment may have served in part as a mask to deny those very principles to those who were not like them, this is not all that those principles have done. Jefferson, who proclaimed that all men are created equal and then as a conflicted hypocrite violated that principle by keeping slaves, did not therefore invalidate the importance and inspirational power of the very principle 
he proclaimed and may have personally violated. For those black people and women whom Jefferson excluded from his democracy were able to use his very own words to agitate for freedom and equality that he himself had denied them. And people everywhere for generations have used that sturdy ideal, enlightenment ideal, that quote, all men are created equal, to argue for their freedom and equality wherever they may be. In short, the principle has a power to transcend its own application in every historical period. Indeed, despite the claims of cultural relativists, when people find themselves oppressed, they will argue against their oppression using terms of freedom, equality, and justice, which are very much like those first articulated by the creators of the European Enlightenment. For indeed, I would argue that these values are truly universal. The second mistake that those who knock the Enlightenment make is the, the assumption that cultures are somehow monolithic, that it makes sense to speak of a Muslim culture or an African culture or a Latino or a Jewish culture. But this is surely a naive, romantic, and false understanding of what a culture is. Cultures are not monolithic phenomena. Rather, they are a product of what my revered Professor Cornell West refers to as, quote, radical hybridity. He once said to me after a lecture many years ago, he said, Joe, you know, every culture, and here he's a black man and a race man, he says that every culture is really a hybrid, which, which has within it a multitude of subcultures. You know, from the outside, we have this romantic notion of culture. From the outside, being an outsider, you look at a culture and you may assume everybody is the same with the same values. All you have to do is enter into that culture, hang around a while, and you find out that people are really at each other's throats, okay? That there are, and believe me, I come out of a Jewish background and I know very well how argumentative, right, the Jewish world is between Jewish leftists, Jewish agnostic, Orthodox Jews, these and so on and so forth. To talk about a Jewish culture is really to give a false name, a simplistic reduction, okay, it's called essentialism philosophically, an essence to a phenomenon that in practice and in fact, and this is true of all cultures, is really incredibly internally diverse. Moreover, culture, and this is an important thing to remember, is a dynamic and not a static thing. Cultures grow, cultures change. They don't remain the same. There are Muslims to which enlightenment values are foreign and others who accept and applaud them. In African tribal cultures, there are women who will submit to female genital mutilation as an acceptable initiation into their community, and there will be women in the same tribe, exactly the same tribe, and I've met them, okay, doing the work with refugees that I do, people, women in the same tribe who will oppose the very same practice, okay, within the context of the same tribal community, okay, and they'll condemn it and try to escape it and condemn it as a brutal, barbaric expression of patriarchy. Uh, I remember in my class a few years ago at Columbia, I had a lovely young woman from Saudi Arabia who on her application, I'm on the admissions committee, on her application wrote, I am a proud Hijazi woman. Hijaz is a northern province of Saudi Arabia. And then when I got to know her, she wanted me to write a letter of recommendation, so she gave me her, um, her resume. And on it, when it said other interests and hobbies, she wrote boxing. Well, the next time she came to our, my office, I said, boxing? 
Oh, she said, yeah, I've got a trainer. And I said, well, where do you train? She said, well, we go out into Central Park when no one's around and there's a grove of little trees and we spar behind the trees. And I said, you're a Saudi woman who's into boxing? She said, yeah. And I said, does that exist in Saudi Arabia? She said, yeah. That there, if you have enough money, okay, and you're wealthy, there are gyms for women only, of course, sexually segregated, where wealthy Saudi women can indeed train as boxers. Now, are these boxing Saudi women any less Muslim, okay, that, than those who promote the wearing of the, 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 um, the niqab or the, the, the chador? Well, you take your pick, okay? It's hard to say. I would say there are not. Uh, there are Muslims, you know, we think the big question is, is Islam compatible with democracy? Is it compatible with women's rights? Well, Indonesia, the largest, the largest uh, Muslim country in the world, is a democracy. Bangladesh is a democracy. Both those countries, as well as West Pakistan, have had women, okay? All three countries have had women as prime ministers, something that this country has yet to grow to. So when we talk about cultures, we have to be very careful, especially when you're talking about 1.3 billion people. There's tremendous diversity. And to essentialize cultures and to write them off in stereotype fashion, okay, I think is making a big mistake. My own view is that we in the West may have given away too much in the name of tolerance, and by holding on to the values of equality, justice, and universal dignity and rights, as we understand them, we may actually have more allies in other cultures than we initially realize. That's an important thing to remember and something that my human rights work teaches me in meeting people from other cultures. We, with our Western values, rather than in effect questioning them or discarding them or feeling defensive about them, have to recognize that there are many people in those other exotic cultures that have values that are identical to our own. We live in a world in which political power in this country and elsewhere is increasingly in the hands of religious literalists, fundamentalists, and fanatics, and that isn't okay, and we should not be afraid to say so. We live in a world in which even educated believe, believe, people believe in alien abductions and astrology over astronomy and all kinds of related irrational nonsense, and that isn't okay, and we should not be afraid to say so. We live in a society in which the middle class is dwindling, the rich are increasingly privileged, and economic justice is in short supply, whether one is white or black or Latino, male or female. We live in a world in which two billion people subsist on less than $2 a day, and it isn't getting better, and it isn't okay. We live in a world in which millions are infected with AIDS, slavery flourishes in Africa and Asia, women are bought and sold as part of a vast economic sex trade, children are condemned to drudgery as lifelong indentured servants, and barbaric wars rage on. These moral evils remain evil, regardless of the culture that perpetrates them and regardless of the cultures of those who suffer them. In order to create a moral world, we need to reclaim, I believe, a sturdy foundation of universal justice and equality and the universal dignity of all human beings and state it out loud without apology and with confidence. If we are to care about these conditions and long to see them overcome, then we need to rededicate ourselves to enlightened ideals on which the modern world has been built, to knowledge, to freedom, to basic human rights, to justice, to equality, to dignity, to all those universal values that make for human decency, even nobility, not for some people, but for all.